Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Well, hopefully you have your Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at chapters 24 through 26. So I'm just going to read those three chapters, and then I'll pray, and we'll be done. Hey! <laughs> yeah, Steve said I had to go at least five minutes longer than he usually does, so that he didn't make him look bad. So we'll be here till one o'clock this afternoon, but that'll all work out. I'm just kidding. Thank you so much for the invite, guys. Uh, we used to do some of these pulpit swaps back in the Maritimes. And uh, some along the way, they kind of sort of uh, petered out, and so it's nice to have them back. Uh, we've invited uh, three of our fellowship guys over to Grace and uh, done some pulpit swaps. Uh, Andrew Swanson from Main Street Baptist in Sackville, New Brunswick, and then with Perry Edwards at Sovereign Grace up in Oromukto. Unfortunately, though, with that pulpit swap, uh, I was in Toronto, and so he swapped and I didn't swap on the other end, so... Uh, a couple Sundays ago, we were there to kind of finish off that pulpit swap, and now this morning, as mentioned, Stephen and Florence are with us in Charlottetown, and we're here with you guys, and we are thankful for your hospitality and for the invitation to be here. Steve mentions you guys are going through the Gospel Project, and you've been in the book of Acts, and so we're going to look at chapters 24 through 26. Paul's extended trial in Caesarea before he shipped off to uh, Rome. So let's dive into the text. I'll read the text uh, together with you. Uh, so follow along if you would. We're going to read uh, Acts chapter 24, and uh, then we'll, uh, we'll look at these three chapters together uh, this morning. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, that laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. And uh, he knows how to uh, butter up the guy that he's talking to here, true lawyer. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before, uh, toward both God and man. Now for several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. 
or else that these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Priscilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often, conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. How many sermons do you figure you've heard in your lifetime? How many of you figure you've heard at least 50 sermons? <clears throat> okay, anybody heard 100 sermons? Okay, 200? 1,000? Anybody heard 1,000 sermons? Okay. All right, now I'm getting into dangerous territory. <laughs> All right. We get to hear sermons a lot. We get to hear the Word of God preached. My concern always is, what is that doing? Are we coming here Sunday after Sunday and hearing the Word of God presented? And that was a great sermon, or maybe it wasn't, and then we go home. What are we doing with the Word preached, the Word proclaimed? Is it changing us? Preaching is a unique activity. It's unlike any other activity in that it calls for decisions. Every time that the Word of God is preached, is proclaimed, we have to do something with it. We have to act upon it. We either accept it and allow it to change us, or we deny it and reject it, and we go our way. I talk often at Grace Baptist about this. It's almost like getting a vaccination, an inoculation. They give you a little bit of the disease so that you don't get the whole thing. And for many of us, I hope not many of us, but for some of us perhaps, we get just enough of the word preached that it really keeps it from actually having its effect in our lives. And that's what we're going to see in the passages before us. There's a number of responses to Paul preaching. Captive audience, pun intended, Paul is a prisoner. And he preaches to a number of individuals. First to Felix then to Festus, and then to Agrippa and Bernice. And of course, also to Felix's wife, Drusilla. And there are a number of people that hear Paul. I don't wonder what that would have been like. Paul has preached already to hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people. And to hear a guy with this passion, to hear a guy that actually saw Jesus, remember the story, he's on his way to Damascus, to put Christians in prison or even to kill them. And he actually sees Jesus and is converted, radically transforms and changes his whole life. And to hear Paul, this guy with all this passion about Jesus Christ, preach what that would have been like. And yet, as far as the text tells us in these chapters, 24 through 26, the response is rather underwhelming. There's, there's not an acceptance of the truth. There's different responses, but they all have the same result. There's not belief. There's not conversion. My fear is that preaching and what we do here on Sunday can become an event rather than something that is, over time, changing us. Are you different than you were last year? 
Maybe some of you are really different, right? Uh, there's weird people in every crowd, and if nobody else is it, it's probably you. So I'm not talking about those differences, all right? But are you changing? Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you more like Christ than you were a year ago? Are you more like Christ than you were five years ago? Are you more like Jesus, supposedly your Lord and Savior, than you were ten years ago? Are you changing? Is the Word of God changing us? Or is it just words? We like to listen, perhaps. We like to sing, and I'm so appreciative of the music here this morning. But is it real? Or is it just something that we do on Sundays? I've said this to my church repeatedly, and I'll say it to you guys here this morning. Christianity is a really stupid hobby. It's probably the dumbest hobby around. If Christianity is a hobby to you, then get another hobby. Okay? It's really dumb just to do Christianity as something that you do on Sunday mornings. It either is everything to us, and it changes everything, or it's not. And if it's not, then why are we pretending? And so we come to the text here, and I want to give us a little bit of uh, background. All right? So if you would, go with me to Romans, all right? next book over in our Bibles, and in chapter 15. We find something interesting here as Paul goes uh, to, back to Jerusalem. Uh, it is, to my knowledge, one of the only times, not the only time in Scripture, where you have a prayer request that is made, and then you also see the results. There's lots of prayer requests made, and lots of prayers offered in, the, in Scripture, but here there's something unique. Paul actually gives a prayer request to the church at Rome, and then we see the results of that prayer request in the book of Acts, back in chapter 21. So to give you some context what's going on here, uh, go to Romans chapter 15, if you would. And I want to start reading at verse 30. Romans chapter 15 and verse 30. And I just threw the sound guys a, a curveball, and I apologize for that, guys. But uh, Romans chapter 15, starting to read at verse 30. Paul's asking the church at Rome. He's writing the church at Rome. He hasn't gotten there yet. He will, after the events that we're going to look at this morning. He's going to get to Rome, and his plan is to go from Rome all the way to Spain. Remember what Paul's burden and passion is. He wants to tell people about Jesus that have never heard about Jesus before. And so he wants to keep moving west. So he writes to the church at Rome, and in chapter 15, starting at verse 30, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf for three things, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul has a prayer request. He has three prayer requests for the church at Rome. He's going to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem, for the first time in a long time, with a gift. Now remember in the New Testament, Paul talks about one thing more than anything else. And that's the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. That is by far the thing he talks about the most in all of his letters and all of his sermons. But the second thing that he talks about the most is this collection of a gift for the church of Jerusalem. In Corinth and in other places that he goes, he asks for a collection for the saints. And that's another beauty as sort of tangentially of this pulpit swap is we are part of a bigger family. Sometimes, especially our gang in Charlottetown, uh, we don't leave the island, even with the fixed link. Uh, they're still kind of stuck there. And we sometimes forget that we're part of something bigger. And Paul calls out the churches, all the places that he goes and says, you are here and you are hearing this message because of the church in Jerusalem. If it wasn't for Jerusalem, you wouldn't be hearing this message. So we need to collect some money for them to send back to them because they are in need. And so he does this wherever he goes. He has now the money. 
And he's about to go down into Jerusalem. And so he asked for three things. Protection from the unbelievers of Jerusalem. That his gift would be acceptable to the saints who are at Jerusalem. And that after he has presented the gift, he would be able to get to Rome. Now we see God's answer to those prayer requests. He was protected from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. He was not protected from the quote-unquote believers in Jerusalem, the Jews in, in Jerusalem. His gift was acceptable to the church, and he is coming to Rome, albeit as a prisoner and not the way he probably initially intended. So in Acts 21 and following, leading up to our passage here this morning, we see this play out. Paul takes the trip. He leaves the elders at Ephesus in chapter 20. He makes his way to the shores of what is present-day Israel. He puts in at Tyre. Some of the saints there are concerned that he's going to Jerusalem. They know the people of Jerusalem have it out, especially the Jews have it out for Paul. They think that he is taking people away from believing in the law, which he is, right? Because the gospel frees us from the law, thank God for his grace. They don't like Paul. They hate Paul. They want Paul dead. In fact, you remember Agabus then comes as they move down the coast, and he binds his hands and his feet with Paul's belt and says, the, per, the person whose belt this is, this is how the Jews the, the, are going to treat him when he gets to Jerusalem. And Paul says, look, guys, stop worrying. God's got this. And if even he wants to kill me in Jerusalem, that's fine. I'm good to go. Goes down to Jerusalem. While he's there, the people at the church tell him, listen, there's some guys that are taking a Nazarite vow. Would you go to the temple, pay their fee? Remember, they have long hair because one of the uh, three things in the Nazarite vow was you couldn't cut your hair. They're going to ceremonially shave their heads as they're now done their vow, pay the price for the sacrifice for them, and kind of put everybody at ease that you're not here to disturb the peace and to draw people away from uh, our ways of doing things, our customs. Interestingly, for the cause of the gospel, Paul agrees. And so that's where they catch him in the temple. There's a riot. He's taken by the Romans. He then addresses the crowd. There's a further riot. He's then sent into prison in Jerusalem. There his nephew finds out about a plot against Paul's life. And so he's shipped off under cover of night to Caesarea. And that's what gets us to Acts 24. It always makes me laugh too because there's guys that come together and they take a vow. They're not going to eat until Paul's dead. And as we find out from the text, he's there for at least two years. <laughs> so either they broke the vow or they're all dead. But anyway, that's always kind of... I don't know why that's humorous to me. I'm a little bit morbid, I guess. But anyway, uh, so here we are in our passage then in Acts 24. So Paul's now at Caesarea, and so the people have to come from Jerusalem to put him on trial. Notice he's prosecuted, and there's three charges against him as we look at the text this morning. Charge one, he is a plague, and he causes riots. The Jews know that if you go to a Roman court, they're not going to dispute over matters of religion. They're not particularly concerned about what the Jews believe and other people believe, and they don't want to get messed around in that. What they are concerned about is the Pax Romana. They're concerned about peace. And Judea is known for its rioting. It's known for needing crowd control. In fact, if you were in the Roman army at this time and you got posted in Judea, you did something wrong. This was not the place that you wanted to be. And so they just want peace. And so the first charge brought against Paul is that he is a plague... He is, he is a disturber of the peace. He's one who causes riots. He is ruining the Pax Romana. And so something needs to be done about him. Notice charge number two. He is a leader of the way. Now they put it in verse 5 that he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Where was Jesus from? Nazareth. 
So there is that link there. So they're linking him to Christ, they're linking him to Jesus. Paul's going to, to clarify that in just a moment. But they say he's a leader of the way. That's a bit of a lesser charge and not one that the Romans would care about. Who cares? Unless they care about the, uh, the, the fuss that Jesus caused that led to his crucifixion. All right? And then charge three is that he has profaned the temple. And again, they leave their least uh, charge to the last. You sort of present your case. Uh, the, the, again, the Romans wouldn't care much about this. Uh, it's not a big deal. If you went up on the Temple Mount at that time, though, there was a little sign, a little placard, and it said very clearly that if you were a Greek, an uncircumcised male, a non-Jew, if you pass across this barrier, if you, if you go past this fence, this knee wall fence, then you could forfeit your life. They were very serious up on the Temple Mount. And so they had said that Paul had brought a Gentile onto and into the temple, past the court of the Gentiles, into where only Jews could go. Paul had not done that, but that was the charge they brought against him. And so these are the charges that are against Paul. Notice then in the second place this morning, we see Paul's defense. And again, he gets up and he speaks very kindly and very gently to uh, the judge, to Felix. And starting in verse 10, he says, you can verify, not more than 12 days, went up to worship. Not sure I caused that much trouble in less than two weeks. Um, I was not disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. So he says, I didn't stir up any trouble. When he went up to the temple, he went up very quietly with these four individuals that were done their Nazarite vow. He was not intending to stir up any, any issues, any, any problems. So he says, I didn't stir up any trouble. He does, though, admit that he is a follower of the way. Starting in verse 14, he says, I confess to you that according to the way, I do worship the God of our fathers, have hope in God, and that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He then says that he did not profane the temple. Uh, he did not cause any uh, crowd or tumult. These, these Jews from Asia came down and did this, but he did not bring anybody in the temple that he shouldn't have. And he says that the only reason why he's on trial is that he talked about the resurrection of the dead. He said that Jesus gives us hope because he has conquered death and sin. He has resurrected, risen back to life again from the dead. And our hope is in him. When Paul makes that statement, you recall in Acts 21, that's when the riot starts. That's when the issues start. That's Paul's defense. He answers each of these charges. So what does Felix do with all of this? He is a bit of a bind. A politician, if nothing else, has to try to keep everybody happy, which, as we all know, is impossible. And somebody's trying. So what does he do? It says in verse 22 that he has an accurate knowledge of the way. He understands the Christians or is, is aware of them, has some knowledge of them. So what does he do? He puts it off. He says, when Lysias comes down, I'll try your case. So put Paul in custody, house arrest. He can have some friends in, in and, and uh, to help him with his needs. But uh, we're just going to lay low and uh, we'll, we'll put things off. And in verse 27, two years go by and Festus comes in and replaces Felix. And so rather than deal with Paul, upset the Jews, or on the one hand, uh, put an innocent man in prison or perhaps to death, he stalls. It's a fairly common tactic, all right, in politics, and that's what Felix does. Notice what Paul does in the interim. The gospel, though, is presented, and this is what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. It's presented 
to Felix. It is presented to Festus, and it is also presented to Agrippa and Bernice. And this is where we'll go into 25 and 26. Notice in the first place, then, that Paul speaks the truth in love. In verse 25, he reasons with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who is a Jew, first about righteousness. So they have these intellectual conversations about good and evil, what is right, what is wrong, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, these kind of things. Next, he talks about self-control. He talks about uh, being changed and transformed by Jesus. And, of course, this would, uh, would, this would play into the charges that are brought against him because he was charged with causing riots, which would be out of control. That perhaps he's an anarchist. He's against law. And, and Paul says, no, that's not the case. I follow God's law. So they have these discussions about these things. And then he talks about the coming judgment. And God is coming back to judge. He judged Jesus instead of us. But when he comes back the second time, he is coming back in judgment. It is at this point, then, that Felix notices his response. He's alarmed. And he says, all right, go away. I'll summon you when I get an opportunity. And then, of course, in 26, he's hoping for a bribe. He's hoping that Paul will slip him a few denarii, and then he can kind of let him go. But notice, as we wrap up chapter 24, he sent for him often and conversed with him for two years. Felix talks with Paul intellectually. So the first response that we can have to the word preached, to the word of God, is intellectual curiosity. There's a lot of people nowadays that enjoy talking about the Bible. It's a lot more opportunities. There's a lot of sermons that we can listen to online by people that we enjoy listening to. There's tons of books to read. And, and, and Christianity and conservative Christianity seems to be surging back. We're part of the gospel coalition, and this didn't exist even 12 years ago or 15 years ago. And together for the gospel and some of these things and these gospel movements and Nine Marks Ministries and all these things, there's, there's all kinds of things that are out there. Some of us, I fear, enjoy talking about Christianity, but we haven't been impacted by Christ. We enjoy conversing about Christianity, talking about the Bible, but it doesn't actually impact us. It doesn't make any change. And the problem with that is that it deludes us into believing that we are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ because we talk a lot about him. But we may not actually be his children. We may not actually be followers of him because he has not transformed us. We have not submitted to him. We have not owned him, not just as Savior, but also as Lord of our life. And so we talk a lot about Christianity and like to talk to other people about Christianity and about the Bible, but it doesn't really impact us at all. It hasn't changed us. We come here on Sunday and we listen to whoever's there up front and then we go home and we go about the rest of our day. Again, Christianity to us is, is something that we think about perhaps the odd time, but it's not something that, that actually impacts us. Notice in Felix's case, there is initial conviction, but then it is followed by increasing indifference. The reality is, if God convicts you, listen. That is a grace of God. That is part of God's mercy. That he, is, that he is convicting you of areas that you need to change, of things that you need to take seriously that you're not currently taking seriously. 
See, on the one hand, there is legalism, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of the law. Legalists believe that the way to righteousness is by keeping the law. They fail to understand that the law is given to show us of our need of grace. The law cannot save. And yet we try, right? We try to do good things. We try our best. We try to change. We try our New Year's resolutions. And then we're done by January 2nd, right? We try really, really, really hard, and we've been trying, and but nothing's really changing, and, you know, and so we just sort of focus on the things that we're not disobeying, and we kind of downplay the things that we are disobeying, and everybody's happy. But legalism is a fundamental misunderstanding of the law. The law was never intended to save, unless it is because the law drives us to the only one who can save. But on the flip side, you have those that fundamentally misunderstand grace. And they think that grace is a license to sin. But grace is the ability to now keep the law. But we just, yay, grace, I'm free in Jesus. We fundamentally misunderstand what grace is. We love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? By grace are you saved, through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God that no one would boast. But why do we stop there and not go on to verse 10? What is verse 10? For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, all right? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace to say that grace means woohoo, okay? Yes, thank God for grace, and we've sung about it, and it ought to get us excited. We ought to clap. We ought to raise our hands. We ought to get excited. We get more excited about a, a hockey game than we do about grace. That's crazy, all right? We've got to get excited about grace. But what grace does not mean is now we don't have to abide by the law. Grace is now the opportunity and the ability because of Christ that we can actually keep the law. And we have these two fundamental misunderstandings oftentimes in our minds. And so, if we are those who believe ourselves, yes, I'm free because of Christ, but that freedom has caused us to become more selfish and less selfless like Christ, that's where God's conviction comes in. Or perhaps we're legalists here this morning and you like the law. It's comfortable there, right? You've got the parameters. It makes sense to you. You've got your list of things that you can do and you put on the list things that you don't struggle with and then you keep off the list things you do struggle with and everybody's happy, right? Actually, nobody's happy, but you fool yourself into thinking you're happy, right? And perhaps that's where you're at. And God is convicting you that that is not the way, that it is only his, by his grace, all glory to him. When he speaks those words of conviction, thank him. Because that means that he is still active. He is still uh, causing you to think about spiritual things that can lead to repentance, that can lead to life. The more Felix talks to Paul, the less interested he is in the message and the person that Paul is speaking about. It's just intellectual for him. I mean, that's it for you too. Chapter 25, we get to Festus. We're not going to read all of this, but Festus takes over for Felix. And so um, he's got Paul on his hands. What am I supposed to do? He asks Paul, do you want me to send you back to Jerusalem? Paul knows what's waiting there for him. The guys that made the vow are no doubt dead or have had a few bites to eat in the interim, but uh, they still want him dead. He says, nope, I want to stay here and be tried. And then he appeals to Caesar, appeals his case all the way to Caesar, as Roman citizens could do. And so at the end of verse 12, Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Well, then Herod Agrippa II shows up with his wife Bernice, and so Festus wants to kind of show them a good time. And so he says, hey, 
I've got this really cool guy in prison, Paul. He's a pretty smart dude, and we've been having some chats, and maybe you'd like to meet him. And notice in verse 23 of chapter 25, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. This is Herod Agrippa II. Uh, he would be a grandson or great-grandson to Herod the Great. Uh, he would be, I think, the son or the grandson of the Herod that put uh, John um, to death and had Peter in prison. And uh, so here they come with all of the retinue and all of the celebration that comes with um, having a king in town. And uh, they, they say, we're going to listen to Paul. And so in verse, chapter 26, Paul comes, and again, he shares the gospel, and he shares his own experience as he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And then, of course, we have two more reactions, starting in verse 24 of chapter 26. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Another response to the word preached is that's crazy. That's nuts. And that's a common response. We have individuals that think the Bible is crazy and it's silly. In fact, we have a lot of antagonism towards the Bible uh, these days. That those who follow it are misogynistic and bigots and homophobic and any number of things. And so the Bible is crazy, and anybody that reads the Bible is also crazy. And this is Festus's response to Scripture. I pray this morning that it is not yours, but it is a response. There's certainly indifference, intellectual curiosity, but no real heart change, no real life change. And then there's also, that's just crazy. But Paul switches it up, and he says, but Festus, I'm not talking to you. He says, I'm not of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, but my attention is on the king. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He would know, as the Herod, the stories from his family of Jesus Christ. This is not that long ago. He would know of the way. He would know all of these things. And he would certainly know the Old Testament, uh, being a Jew himself. And so then he, Paul puts it to him as preaching is supposed to do. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You have the Bible, the only Bible at the time, the old, the old, what we call the Old Testament. I know, Agrippa, he says, that you believe the prophets. Do you believe in Jesus? It was also one of the prophets, the final prophet, the greatest of the prophets. So what does Agrippa say? This famous response back to Paul. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Really, Paul? You think one speech is going is to do it? All right, I need some time to think about this. I need some time to consider this. I've got my career. I kind of like my position. I've got to give this some thought. You think you're just going to persuade me in one, one fancy speech and about your conversion? So, of course, Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. It doesn't matter, rich or poor, whatever your social status is, your ethnicity, your language of birth. Paul says, I wish everybody here was just like me, knowing our Creator, having relationship with the God who made us through Jesus Christ. Of course, it would be nice not to be a prisoner. <laughs> That's how he wraps up. But what of Agrippa's response? I need more time. How long have you been coming, Faith Baptist? How long have you been a part of this church? How long have you heard the message of the gospel? 
How long have you seen it transform people's lives? How long have you been observing the people at this church who are not perfect? And I hope they'd be the first to tell you that. None of us are perfect. The message of Christianity is not that we've got things all figured out. If that's the message of Christianity, then every single Christian is a hypocrite. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is we desperately do not have it figured out. We desperately need Jesus. That's the message of Christianity. If you want to find the most amount of sinners in Great Village, they're here this morning. Okay? This is where all the sinners come. All right? We know that we are sinners and we publicly admit that because we have one who has paid for all of those sins on the cross, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? We can admit that we are sinners because of the gospel. Now, the message of Christianity is the grace of God. Perhaps you've heard it. You've, I know you have faithfully heard it. I know your pastors and your pastor's families and some of you even from this congregation. I know you've heard the gospel. But perhaps this morning you are, as with every other Sunday morning when you come, I need more time to think about this. I have more time. None of us know how much time we have. And Agrippa's response is, I need a little bit more time, Paul. Do you really think... That just one speech is really going to persuade me to be a Christian? Just, just, I, I, need, I need to give this some more thought. And as I mentioned, how many sermons is it going to take? How many, how many times have you heard the word of God preached? And yet as you sit here, I'm still considering this. I'm still thinking this through. My appeal to you is, this is truth. We don't just sing these songs because they make us feel good and we like to clap our hands. This is real. And it will transform your life as it has transformed mine and everyone else in here who has been transformed and is being transformed by the gospel. And so we've got to do something with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. So what do we do with that? We saw at least three reactions from these chapters. Felix's response right out of the gate. He likes to talk about this. He likes to talk about intellectual things about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That intrigues him. You may find somebody, and you may be in that position yourself this morning. You enjoy sort of talking about spiritual things from time to time. And every once in a while, Felix would, hey, Paul, come. I need some intellectual stimulation. Come and let's chat about things. But as we, far as we know, it does not have any impact on Felix. It does not change him. And if, we do not, if we're not being changed with the gospel, then we do not believe it. We can talk about it, but are we actually living it out? Is it, has it transformed us? Do we actually believe that Jesus has died and rose again from the grave? That he has taken all of our sins on him, past, present, and future? That he does love us and will forgive us if we repent and believe? Or do we just like coming here and talking about it and hearing somebody else talk about it? You have Festus. He just thinks the whole thing's nuts. Paul, you're 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 crazy. How could someone who studied with Gamaliel and knows the law, how could you say such crazy things, Paul? This is nuts. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You don't tell anybody that, and you're here because your family comes, and, and uh, that's why you're really here. But for, to you, this is all crazy. This doesn't make any sense. I'm here to tell you this morning, as your pastors are faithfully every Sunday and every time they speak to you, this is true. This is not something that is, is nuts. This is not something that is foolish. This is true. Jesus Christ actually did come. He actually did die on the cross. And he actually did rise to life again from the grave. How many of you have heard of the case for Christianity? Right? Lee Strobel. Started out to try to disprove Christianity. And where did he go? He went to the linchpin of Christianity. What we believe, why we're here this morning, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where he goes. 
and in trying to disprove the resurrection, he became a follower of Jesus Christ, right? It's true. This is true. This is not just something we make up. This is true, as crazy as it may sound to your ears here this morning. My appeal to you is believe the truth. And then you have Agrippa. And Agrippa says, uh, I just need some more time, Paul. You know, I, you know, Bernice and I, we've got a good thing going here. And, you know, I like all the pomp and circumstance. I like all the things of this life, you know, the money and the fame and the power. And, yeah, it's not all, man. You, you really think that you're just going to persuade me that easy? I need some more time, Paul. Give me, give me some more time to think about this. I mean, that, maybe that's you and maybe that's been you. And my appeal to you this morning is how much time do you have? We don't know how much time, more time we may have. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Come and believe. And for those of us that do believe, how is it transforming us? How is it changing us? We can also fall into these traps. Are we different? Are we more like Christ now than we were just even a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Are we moving towards Christ's likeness? Are we more gentle? Are we more gracious? Are we more holy? Are we more just? Are we more loving? Are we more kind? Are we becoming more like our Savior each passing day? Is it transforming us, the word preached over time? Or is it just in one ear and out the other, as every parent with children uh, knows? Is that us? Or is it changing us? This is it. This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the gospel. My appeal to all of us is believe, repent and believe, and allow it to change you, not only this morning, but for the rest of your life. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we close this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for Paul and his uh, testimony and uh, his passion to share you with everyone. You give him these amazing opportunities that you prophesied you would give him. You told him when you met your son on the road to Damascus, you will tell of me before kings and queens, princes and princesses. You will have opportunity to share the message about me with many individuals. And this comes true here in these passages of Scripture. Thank you for Paul's conversion. Thank you for his boldness. But Father, as with everything else in Scripture, this is not about Paul. This is always about you. And even as Courtney mentioned, Jesus loves me and is on every page of Scripture. Father, this is about you and your love, your righteousness, satisfied in Jesus Christ, your Son. This is about the good news that although we are great sinners, there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And if we repent and believe and trust in Him and Him alone, he will transform us, make us new. It will be gradual, yes, but it will be consistent. And one day we know that not only are we saved from the penalty of sin and being saved from the power of sin, one day we'll be saved from even sin's presence. Where we'll be glorified and in your presence to praise you and to thank you for what you have done. Wretched sinners that we are, we are loved by you. So Father, what do we do with this? I pray that our response this morning would not be perhaps as it has been in the past. That these are things to talk about, but they're not really transformative things. They don't actually change anything in our lives. That perhaps we read your word and hear your word preached, but it doesn't impact us. May that not be the case. We're both unbelievers and believers alike. Father, may we not reject the things that your word teaches. They are true. 
You have made all things, and therefore you know how all things are to operate. And so, Father, again, I just pray that we would accept and believe, and not just begrudgingly, but that we would rejoice in truth this morning. It is glorious. It is life-giving. It is beautiful. Father, may we not be as Agrippa who says, I need more time. Father, how much more time do we have? We do not know. And so we want to be following you, trusting you, glorying in you, and loving you as you love us, Father, today and all the days that you give us. Father, it's all about you. It's always been all about you. And may we live that in our lives. So, Father, again, thank you for the truth of your word. May it continue to change us, not just be something heard and something read and something prayed, but something precious that changes us from the inside out. And gradually, slowly, at times it seems imperceptibly, but consistently, Father, <clears throat> you are making us like our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we will see one day if we are his. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name.